invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Let's read God's good word together. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Where are they sending us? That is what Courtney and I were wondering. In 2012, we were living in Nashville, and I had just finished my Master of Divinity degree at Vanderbilt University. I'd been commissioned as an elder in the church. I was credentialed. I was educated. I was ready. And I was very apprehensive about where I was about to be sent because I didn't know. I knew that we were moving back to Oklahoma, but, uh, and somewhere within the state we were going could have been the Panhandle, could have been Southeast Oklahoma or anywhere in between. And so we were waiting. And finally, I got a call from my new district superintendent, and he let us know we were headed to Hydro. And I was like, great, where exactly is that? <laughs> I had grown up in Norman. There were about 100,000 people there when I was growing up. And so uh, after I got off the phone, I Googled Hydro. I found out it's 50 miles west of Oklahoma City, right on I-40 outside of Weatherford. And according to the most recent census, there were just under 1,000 people living there. It was a little bit different than my suburban upbringing. And so Courtney and I went out there. We traveled there to meet some of the people before we moved and got to know some of them. And one of the people that I met was named Woody. He was the lay leader of the church, and we were having a conversation. And one of the things that he said to me, he said, you know, I hear some preachers, and they pray the longest prayers. I mean, they just keep praying and praying. And you know what? They don't even pray for rain. And uh, I learned something. I did not pray very often for rain. When growing up in Norman, rain meant we could turn off the sprinklers and save a little bit of money on the water bill. Uh, For Woody, some years, rain meant the difference between whether he was going to keep his farm or not. I mean, it it was his livelihood. It was everything that he had. And thankfully, he let me know that going in. So my first Sunday, you know what I prayed for? Rain. I prayed for rain. Because he told me what mattered most to him. I mean, that, that, that was their life. And, and he shared that with me. I'm so thankful that he did. He, he's great to my family. I, I'm grateful. It's a wonderful community that we got to go to. But I, I figured out pretty quickly that it didn't matter to him where I got my degree from. It didn't, I mean, he wanted to know that I knew the Bible well enough to teach it and communicate it to people. But he didn't care about all the other fancy stuff that I knew. He cared about whether I cared about the things that mattered most to him. And that's what we're going to talk about, the things that matter most today. We're we're in week three of a sermon series. That's uh, a wheat field, by the way. I guess uh, that was supposed to be behind me. Sorry, I forgot to click. Anyway, if you go outside of the city limits of Hydro, that's about all you see. And uh, and so, uh, anyway, that was a new experience for us. 
But, uh, but we're in week three of our sermon series, Life Together, and uh, we're talking about what that looks like. We're looking at the book of Philippians because this is um, a book that tells us about what it really means to live in community together. It's a letter that Paul writes to the people in Philippi, to the church there, and uh, it's a community they had a great relationship with, and they supported one another and show us a blueprint of what it looks like to live in relationship with one another. So that's what we're talking about. And week one, what we saw is that we are better together. We are not created to live alone as isolated individuals, but as part of a community, of a life-giving community. And so that's a word that we hear a lot. We hear about it in, uh, in, places, in people who are selling us um, homes in, in certain neighborhoods. We hear about it a lot in churches. And, uh, and this is what author Ruth Haley Barton says. She says, community is the most over-promised and under-delivered aspect of the church today. And I don't know about you, but growing up in church, I, I would hear about the word fellowship. We'd talk about fellowship. And mostly what that meant was gossiping over coffee and donuts. And uh, that's not a community worth giving your life to, right? I mean, if that's all it is. And, uh, and yet, whenever we read about that word, we say it every week, we, whenever we um, remember Acts 2.42 together. But whenever we read that word, uh, fellowship, what it actually means is partnership, is coming together, supporting one another, encouraging one another, and, and helping one another out in times of need, and, and coming together for a mission that's greater than any one of us. That's what fellowship really is. And, and so it's a lot bigger than coffee and donuts. I mean, that's great. I love our coffee and our donut holes. I try not to eat them too much, but, uh, but it's a lot more than that. That's, that's really just the beginning of it. And, and so we saw that we need a community of faith to grow into the people God has created us to be all along. We can't do it on our own. No matter how much time we spend in the Bible and praying, we need other people to help us get there. And so this is what, uh, what the theologian Robert Mohan said. He says, we can no more be conformed to the image of Christ outside corporate spirituality, I mean spirituality and community, than a coal can continue to burn outside the fire. We need one another. That's the only way that we're inspired, that we're ignited, that we're encouraged to go together. And, and so we, this is what Paul's talking about in the book of Philippians. This is the kind of relationship that they had. And so he started this church. We read about that in Acts chapter 16. And five or ten years later, after starting the church there, he was in prison. And he writes this letter to the church that has been caring for him. In the ancient world, if you were in a Roman prison, they did not feed you. That You had to depend on your family and friends to come and to bring you food. And so they sent money to him from Philippi. He was probably, that was in um, just north of Greece in Macedonia. Uh, Paul was probably in either Ephesus or Rome, so a long way away. They couldn't take him food every day, so they sent money instead. But they were caring for him and making sure that he was able to continue to survive. And, um, and that's the kind of community that they had. That's the kind of fellowship and partnership that they shared. And so that's where we started in, in week one, this relationship that Paul had with the church. Then last week what we saw is that Christian life, the Christian life is a public act of living as a citizen of heaven. That's what Paul says, that we are citizens of heaven. And so that, that affiliation, that relationship supersedes any other affiliation that we have. Even our, our citizenship in our own country, our, our citizenship in heaven supersedes that. And it requires us to live in a certain way, not just as isolated individuals, but, but as, public, as people who are publicly members of the church, who, who publicly follow Christ, not just, uh, not just trying to be good and not commit any sins, but actually living a different way in public. It, it, kingdom citizenship, it requires sacrifice. It requires the Holy Spirit to give us power so that we can achieve a unity by living like Jesus. That's what it's about, not, not just believing certain things, but actually living differently. And whenever we do that, that Christ-like sacrificial service is how the Philippians are to live a common life of humility and joy 
following the example of Jesus, who, who didn't just look down on us from heaven and say, oh, that's too bad, they, they're really suffering down there, but who emptied himself and became one of us so that we might be made one with God, so that we might experience his riches. And, and so that's the example that he sets, and it actually brings us joy whenever we sacrifice on behalf of others. And so that's really where we started. Today we're going to talk about the things that matter, the things that really matter. And so we, Paul shifts gears, and it seems kind of abrupt if you're reading from chapter 2 to chapter 3, but, uh, but he warns the Philippians against a group of people who are teaching that Christians must obey the law of Moses, and, and specifically non-Jewish or Gentile Christians who have decided to follow Jesus. And some people were going around and teaching, okay, you want to follow Jesus? Jesus was Jewish, so you have to become Jewish as well. That includes super, um, circumcision for men. That includes following dietary laws, observing the Sabbath, and all of these kinds of things. And, and, and what Paul says is, is that's not necessary. And if you want more background than that, we're not going to go super deep into it. We did a sermon series about a year ago on Galatians, if some of you remember that, Ancient Wisdom for Anxious Times. And so you can find that on the website if you're um, like, hey, I want to learn more about all these conflicts that were going on. But, but that's kind of the background. So it wasn't just in, in the church in Galatia, but, but it was a widespread thing that was going on. But, but what Paul said is that um, if you're not Jewish, then those rules don't apply to you. And in fact, if you follow those anyway, basically what you're doing is, is you're putting your trust in your own ability to follow the law, is putting your faith in your own abilities. And, and so this is what he says. He, he, and uh, so Paul is pretty subtle in his rhetoric, you can see. <laughs> Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, the flesh. for it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. And, and so whenever he talks about, this is a word that, he, a concept that Paul uses a lot, the, the word flesh. We, we think of that and think it has to do with um, sexuality. That's really not what he's talking about. Whenever he uses that word, what he's talking about is our own abilities apart from God. Uh, basically, our kind of, our, our abilities as, as they're limited by sin. And, and so that's what he's talking about. It's basically by putting your confidence in the flesh, circumcision is something that happens to our bodies. By putting your confidence in that, you're actually not putting your confidence in God. And so Paul's saying we have no confidence in that. All of our confidence is in Jesus Christ. But uh, he's a good rhetorician. He's good at making an argument. And, and so Paul goes on and he's like, but even if we did put our confidence in that, I have more reason to be confident than those people do. He's like, I have more reason to trust in myself than most. He, he had a good lineage. He was raised in an observant family. And this is how he says it. He says, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Again, this uh, Ignore the fact that he was talking about humility like a chapter ago. <laughs> but, but he says, circumcised on the eighth day as the law requires, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and so he knew his lineage. He, he could trace it back to, to the original 12 tribes of Israel. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. And Paul was literally a Pharisee in his life before he was following Jesus. And, and so as we might say, he was raised right. And, uh, and he took to his raising, his upbringing. And not only was his upbringing solid, but he was also so passionate for the law that he persecuted the church. And uh, this maybe we might say, you know, if your passion leads you to persecute people, that's, then you're doing it wrong. But, uh, but it took Paul a while to figure that out. But this is what he says. So he, not only was he a Pharisee with regard to the law, as to, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul's not saying that he was perfect, that he never committed a sin, but, but he followed the law, and as it made, um, made, 
made available the possibility of atoning for sins through sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, Paul kept that. And, and so as far as the law was concerned, he was blameless. He kept it all. He had more reason to be confident than anyone else. And, and not just that, but Paul was really a rising star before he began following Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, of, of the ruling council in Jerusalem. And uh, he was somebody who had a future and, and had all of these things going for him. He, he had status. He had power. And this is what he says, though. He says, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. So not just those are less important to me now, but on the balance sheet, those are in the red. Those are negative. That's how, that's how significant the gap is. This is so much less than knowing Christ that, that I regard them as a loss. Now, these are mostly good things. Persecuting people, again, not, we leave that. That's in its own category. But all the other things, those are good things. And yet compared to knowing Christ, Paul says, all those things, they count for nothing. They're a negative. Despite his pedigree, Paul considered it all a loss compared with knowing Christ. And so once he encountered Christ, as we read about in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, he let it all go. He walked away from it. He was a rising star climbing the ladder, and he walked away from it because he figured out there's something much more important than the things that I'm chasing after. And we know something about that, about that kind of desire to climb the ladder of seeking status and, and trying to, to acquire things for ourselves, to, to have status and respectability and wealth and all those things. We, we live in a, in a society that's obsessed with the outward marks of status, of trying to figure out how can I get a better position? How can I get a promotion? How can I get more power? Or how can I get more wealth, you know, and, and more than those other people? Of course, we don't ask people what their net worth is, but we try to figure it out. Like, okay, what neighborhood do they live in? And what kind of car do they drive? Where do they go? on? You know, all these things. And then we compare ourselves and try to figure out how can I get more status than they have? How many followers do they have on that blog that they created a while back? How can I get more? We, we think of all of these things. How can I get better? How can I be higher than somebody else? How can I get more status than myself? And of course, status is the kind of thing, it's, it's limited, because if everyone had it, then it wouldn't count for anything, right? And so there's only so many spaces at the top. But even if we get there, which by definition, most people don't, even if we get there, we're hollow, and we're wondering why we aren't content, right? I've been chasing after this career for, for decades, and I finally got to the position that I've been, sinking, I've been seeking after. Why don't I feel better, like, I thought I would be happy now. I've, I've put off happiness all this time, and I've made all these sacrifices. Where is it? Why haven't I gotten there? Have you ever had that experience of thinking, you know, once I get here, once I get out of school and I graduate, or once I get, you know, this promotion, or, or once my, my kids get to this place or have this kind of success, then I'll, I'll really feel better. And we get there, and we don't. I mean, maybe we do for a day or two, but it doesn't last because we know that those are not the things that make us content. Those are not the things that are most important. And so we have that hollow feeling. What does Paul say is most important? Knowing Christ. And so Henry Nouwen, one of the great writers, the uh, spiritual writers of the 20th century, um, he was someone who was really successful. He, he had taught at Notre Dame and Yale and, and was teaching at Harvard and, and written many books. He was an in-demand speaker and, and would go and speak in all these places. And, and this is what he says about his success. He says, everyone was saying that I was doing really well, but something inside me was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. The things that he had to do to continue to be successful felt like this was, even though he, he was being really successful in talking about God, it was actually in danger of harming his relationship with God. 
And sometimes we find ourselves in those situations that in order to continue to be successful, to do the things that we have to do, and that can be success in in any kind of sphere. I mean, it can be in your career, in your family, in the kind of things that you want for your children, in just the public persona that you put out there, in the the respectability that you try to get. In all of those things, if, if we're seeking after them, there are compromises that we may have to make that will end up making us sacrifice the things that actually matter most. Probably you know someone who has worked so hard at their job that they've sacrificed their family in order to be successful. There are all kinds of compromises like that that we can make whenever we are putting our entire identity in our status. And so what we have to, what Paul's trying to tell us, what we have to accept is that what defines our identity, it's not our status, it's our relationship with Jesus. It's not how many direct reports we have and how many people are under them. It's not what neighborhood we live in or how successful our kids are or whether or not they're gifted and talented or any of those kinds of things. It's that we know Christ. It's that we know Christ. And so this is what he says. He says, More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whenever he talks about rubbish, that's a polite translation. Like probably if we were literally doing it, it, it's feces. I mean, he's talking about what you flush down the toilet. Probably they didn't have toilets that flushed then, but but you get the picture. Like he's saying it's all junk. It's nothing compared to this thing that matters the most. That's what Henry Nouwen found in his own life as he was chasing after these things, as he was so successful that he found it was actually hurting him, what he felt like God was calling him to step out of academia to to leave Harvard in order to seek a new life. And so after teaching at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, he left academia to live in community with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. That, that he wouldn't be someone that people came up, at, you know, to that waited in line, that tried to enroll in his classes, and, and that he was respected all the time. He would live in community with people with disabilities. He would be one of them and, and would be part of that. And he realized that this is, much more, this is much more in line with what God is calling me to do than being this well-respected speaker. You can see a picture of him at the community where he lived dancing with one of the residents. But he realized this is where I need to be. This is where God is calling me to be. And all those markers of status pale in comparison to this calling. And uh, he talks about his experience in this book in the name of Jesus. I think it's required reading for anyone in Christian leadership, but it's fantastic. And yet, what, it's so easy for us to get caught up in chasing after the things that don't matter, right? I mean, we would understand if Henry Nouwen decided, you know, I'm going to retire at Harvard because that's the pinnacle of, of where I can teach. Uh, that's the pinnacle of my career and what I'm chasing after. But this is what Stephen Covey says. He says it's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap in the busyness of life to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. And if you've ever climbed a ladder and realized that, uh, that you can't quite reach the light bulb that you were trying to reach, you know how that feels, right? Uh, that's a photo of a ladder. It's a cool-looking photo, but, uh, but where's it going to take you? I don't know, probably unless you have some really strong people, it's not going to hold up if you get to the top. And if you want to look far, that's great. But if you want to get to the top just because somebody said that it's great to be at the top, it's not going to get you anywhere. And sometimes the things that we're chasing after, maybe because it's a consciously chosen goal, maybe it's because we we made our way to the track and saw that everyone was running, so we just started running with them. It's like, well, if they're going that way, I guess that's the way we're all going. And we realize, where am I going? This isn't where I want to be. Because it doesn't matter how successful we are if we're seeking the wrong goal. 
right? It doesn't matter how successful we are if it's the wrong goal. I just, I gave up everything so that I could win a race that doesn't matter at all. Like things that I do not want to read about in my obituary, (laughs) right? But sometimes we find ourselves in all these things we chase after that ultimately don't matter. And so we have to make sure that the goal we're pursuing is actually worth pursuing. And and so Paul lays this out and he talks to, to them about what matters most. And it's only after sharing what matters most that he instructs them how to actually pursue it. You've got to get the what right before you figure out the how. You've got to know what direction you're heading in before you start moving. And, and so this is what he says. He says, not that I have already obtained this goal of, of knowing Christ or of, reach, of, of knowing him fully or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, a few of us have probably heard of the Olympic Games, Right? I was inspired by the kind of games that were actually happening during Paul's lifetime in that part of the world. And the language that he's talking about, he's, talk, he's using the language of an athlete, of someone who's running a race. And if you've ever seen sprinters, like, does it help when you're sprinting to look behind you to see who's behind you? No, that is how you get past. That's not good. Most of the time, I didn't have to worry about that. They were already ahead of me whenever I was running track. But right, I mean, so he's saying you can't look behind you. You have to look at what's ahead, what's actually most important. And with everything that you have, pursue that. You don't leave it to chance. You don't think, well, I'm going to do all of these other things and hopefully the race will take care of itself. You focus on the race and let the other things take care of themselves. He's using the language of an athlete in a race seeking to win the prize. And uh, he talks about the, the, the laurel leaf as, as the prize. You're probably familiar with that image. It comes from, from the Greco-Roman games of Paul's lifetime. And, and so he tells them, chase after this with everything you have. And in order to do that, speaking them to them as a master would to an apprentice, Paul instructs them to imitate him. He says, imitate me. That sound, so we talked about humility earlier, right? That, that sounds kind of funny to us. That's actually normative in that culture. You had a master-apprentice system, and so you'd actually say, imitate me. And if you've ever tried to learn a skill that you don't know from someone else, I mean, what do they say? Do what I do. They show you how to do it, and then they give you the example. And so that's what, it sounds funny to us, but it's really what we continue to do today. If you're trying to learn a sport, you have a coach, and they show you what to do first, and, and then you try to do it yourself. And so he says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Because it's not by reading the right things or even listening to them that we figure those out. We have to actually see an example of it, right? I mean, I've got two kids. Sometimes I'll see them doing something that that is not what they're supposed to be doing. And I'll think, where did you learn that? (laughs) We don't act like that. And then I realize you learned it from me. And if you learned it from me, that means I act like that, right? And so it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what I do. And if those things don't line up, then what I do is going to win every time. And so we need that example. That example is how we learn. And and you can read all the books. You can spend a lot of time reading the Bible. It's important. But we need to actually see people living it out in order to be able to do it. We only learn by observing and imitating those who are further along the way. And that's the reason that in 12-step programs, everyone has a sponsor. And, and what do you have to do to be a sponsor? You have to be one day ahead of the person that you're sponsoring. You have to be further on the path so that you can show them what you've done and, and how you continue to live in that way. 
And it's, we live at a time when we can get input from almost anyone. I mean, everybody's got a podcast and a blog and a YouTube channel and all those kinds of things. We can listen to all of these people and, and actually experience what they're sharing. But, but we have to choose wisely because the mentors we choose will determine the goals that we seek and the way that we pursue after them and the progress we make. And so if we're listening to people who only talk about the importance of career success, then that's going to become the thing that we pursue at at the loss of all others. If we're only listening to people who who say certain things, then that's what we're going to seek after. We have to make sure that the people that we're choosing to imitate are people who are worth imitating. And, And for those of us who are in a community, we might ask ourselves, am I living in a way that's worth imitating as well? Because I know whenever I'm around my kids, which is a lot, I've got to be careful the way that I act because they're going to imitate it. And so that's really, it's, it's part of living in community. It's seeking others who know more than we do, who have more experience than we do, so that we can imitate them and living in a way that's worth imitating for the people who are less experienced, who haven't been following Jesus as long as we have. And, and so Paul says, imitate me and Im- imitate others who live the way that I live because he's imitating Christ. And so he says that, and you know, where we think, well, that checks out. You know, he wrote like half of the New Testament, and so he's probably a guy who's worth imitating, if a bit eccentric at times. But, but if one of the things that, that's easy to miss, I think, is, is that imitating Paul, it wasn't a safe choice for the people. Like, where is he writing from? Prison. prison. Yeah, he was, he was in prison as he was writing to them. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually get letters from prison and think, this is a person that I need to imitate. <laughs> right? I mean, Paul said things, he did things in order to follow Christ that got him whipped, that got him chased out of towns and thrown into prison. So he's saying, imitating me, imitate me. And I don't know about you, but that causes me a little bit of trepidation to think about. And so here's the thing that I don't, I mean, I don't want to, you know, polish it up and say everything will be great if you choose to prioritize Christ. If you choose to prioritize Jesus over status, we're going to miss out on things, There are things we're going to miss out on, and we may even suffer as a result. But the things we miss out on probably are worth missing out on. Because there are things, I don't know if you've experienced this, but there there are times when we get into certain careers and and we realize that everyone else is cutting corners that shouldn't be cut ethically, and uh, they're doing things, but everyone else does it. And if I do that, then I'll get left behind. Well, if, if it costs you your integrity, it's probably worth getting left behind. There are things that, that we try to do for our kids because we don't want them to be left out, but we think, you know, if this were me in a vacuum, I would not let them do this, but everyone else is, and so I guess I have to, and, and, and I know I'll experience this worse as, as my children continue to age, but there are things, you know, we say, I, you know, I guess we have to, but those things are worth missing out on. We can actually say no to those things because there are some choices that we'll make where the consequences are too great. And Jesus says it, I mean, pretty pointedly in Matthew 16. He says, what good it will, be, will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And maybe you know people who have done that, who, who have been so successful, but whenever you have a conversation with them, you realize they're not the person you knew. They've had to become someone else to get where they are. Or you know someone who, who, who's made it to the top, to the pinnacle of their profession, and all they had to sacrifice was their family right? I mean, we know people who've done that. We've even probably experienced that to some degree or another. And so we have to ask ourselves, are the things that I'm chasing worth sacrificing my soul? Are they worth sacrificing the things that matter most? And here's the really beautiful thing. As we do this in community, as we seek the things that that allow us to follow Christ faithfully, not the things of status, your faithfulness can help someone else make the faithful choice. 
because they will see you do it and they'll realize, oh, that's possible. Like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't get a promote. They didn't get a promotion and they're still breathing and people still like them. Like, I can make it through that too. I, this is a, a small example, but I have a colleague who, um, whenever his son was about nine or 10, was playing soccer and they got to the end of the year. And what do you have to do at the end of any successful sports season or unsuccessful sports season? You have to have a party. And so they decided they're going to have a party and somebody was in charge of planning it. And it just kind of started to, to snowball and get a little bit over the top. And so, you know, they decided that they were going to get a party bus and do all these kinds of things. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know where the line is for you, but for him, that was past his line. He's like, you know, nine or 10 year old soccer, it's a considerable expense to all the families. This isn't something that we need to, know, to do. And so, you know, we let the coach know, you know, thank you for a great season. We're not going to do this and uh, we hope you have a great time. And uh, he was fine. He explained it to his son and said, you know, these are our values. This is why we're not doing this. And his son was like, oh, okay. Now your mileage may vary on that point. Like that, may, that conversation may or may not go well, but they were fine with it. Afterward, um, ev- you know, everyone else had gone and he was talking to another parent and, and she said, you know, I thought that was too much too, but I didn't want to be the only one who didn't do it. See, whenever we are willing to say no to things, we give other people strength so that they can say no to them as well. Now, a, a post-soccer season party may not matter, but your courage may give someone else the courage to say no to something that really does matter a lot. They really could upend their life if they say yes. And whenever we do this together, whenever we seek the way of Jesus together, it enables us to seek the things that matter most. And we can follow the example of Christ, who did not lift himself up, but emptied himself for our sake. We can actually follow this advice that Paul says that, that sounds great, but it's really hard to do. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of who? Of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So Henry Nouwen tried to do this in his decision to live in a community of adults with, uh, with intellectual and developmental disabilities and, and spent the last part of his life living there. And he still got speaking invitations and he would accept those, although now instead of just deciding for himself, he, he was part of a community. And so he had to take input from the others in the community about whether this was something that he was going to take or not. But he discerned that it was right to, for him to take this one in Washington, D.C. And usually he traveled by himself and uh, would do everything on his own. But he... he realized that whenever Jesus sent people out, he never sent them on their own, right? We've talked about this. He sent them in twos. And so he decided he needed to take someone from the community with him. And so he took a man named Bill who had an intellectual disability, but was able to communicate and and get around pretty well. And so they traveled together to Washington, D.C. Bill was really excited. He had his own hotel room. and, And whenever they got there, there was a basket of fruit and a bottle of wine waiting for him. And he had all these channels and didn't have to share the remote. So he was super excited. And, uh, but after they got checked in and settled in, they had to go to the venue for the event. And uh, the time came and Henry Nouwen walked up to the podium and began to speak. And just as he started, he realized that Bill was standing right behind him, like just right there. And he's like, okay, what's going to happen? But he had no choice but to continue. So he did. And uh, as he got to the end of each page, he would set it aside and Bill would grab it and flip it upside down and set it on the table next to him. And uh, he's like, okay, that'll work. I, I can deal with this. And he continued, he would tell some stories and, and Bill would say, I've heard that before. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you know, I probably could use the reminder that what I'm sharing is not as new and profound as I like to imagine it is. 
And so that was helpful to him. It kind of set people at ease. And, and he continued. And he said one of the stories that he told was that now living in community, the question that the residents ask him most is, are you going to be home tonight? And, uh, and Bill said, yes, John Smeltzer is the one who asks him that. And, and he continued, and he got to the end, and people applauded, and he got a standing ovation. And while they were clapping, Bill walked up to him and said, Henry, I'd like to speak now. And he thought, okay, I have no idea how is this going to go. What if, what if he just talks forever and we can't get him away from the mic? And then he, he caught himself and realized, who am I to presume that he has nothing to offer to the people here? And so he got their attention. He asked them to sit down and said, Bill would like to say something. And so Bill walked up. And he said, last time when Henry went to speak in Boston, he took John Smeltzer with him. And this time, he wanted to bring me to Washington, D.C. And I'm glad he did. Thank you very much. And that was it. And as he reflected on it, Henry Nowen realized that he'd given a lot of lectures and a lot of talks that had been forgotten. But probably no one was going to forget the time that he taught with Bill. And Bill asked him afterward, he said, Henry, we did it together, didn't we? And he said, yes, we did it together in Jesus' name. So here's some action steps that I want to give you as we try to live this out together this week. First, I want you to think about the goals that you're pursuing and ask, are they the right goals? Maybe it's something that you consciously decided. You know, you set, you've got your uh, career goals or you've set your annual goals, your quarterly goals, whatever that is. Maybe it's just something like, I'm doing this because I think it's what I'm supposed to do and everyone else is doing it. Maybe it's not consciously chosen, but it's just kind of de facto what you're seeking after. And if there are any that are leading you in the wrong direction, like, let go. That's, it's not worth winning that race. Walk away from it. And then reflect on your relationship with Jesus. Paul says, this is the most important thing. Everything else is loss compared to this. Everything else is negative. And so how are you spending time with him? Choose to spend time with him daily. It's the one relationship that matters most and that can transform all the others. And then we are people who have more opportunities probably than any people who have lived before us. We can do all kinds of things. We have so many chances to do just whatever you can imagine. And I don't know if we remember this all the time, but we can say no. We don't have to say yes to every opportunity, even the really good ones, if they're not the most important. And say, so say no this week to something that distracts you from what matters most. Because if we are the most successful people our family has ever seen, if we have all the power to say anything and it's done just like that, and we lose what matters most, then we've lost everything. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you remind us that what matters most is not how successful we are, how wealthy we are, how popular, any of those things. That what matters most is our relationship with you. So God, help us to find ourselves in that relationship. Help us to see the ways that we seek after things that are not of you and help us to let go, to seek you fully and to follow the example of your son who taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.